Welcome to Heart Talk, a conversation where Amir and Mustafa Farouk talk about issues relating to the Muslim community, especially towards young Muslims in North America. Hey, let's uh, let's get down to it because I'm sure you're busy. Um, so the so like Mustafa, I'm sure already sort of told you, like the purpose of this podcast is just to like explore. Uh, topics that Muslims living in North America face and deal with all the time. And I think mm-hmm. that one of the biggest, you know, they always joke that at conferences there, there are always questions about, uh, you know, the three M's, meat, uh, mortgages, and marriage, right? Yes. But, but it's so true. Like, it's such a big issue for uh, Muslims living today, like Islamic finance, how to avoid riba. It's like a... It's a huge deal. Like even actually last, not last night, but the night before when I was on call, one of the nurses in the ICU is Muslima. She wears hijab, which is a, like I think is a pretty big deal, uh, working at, at the hospital. But she mm-hmm. said like I I couldn't um, I couldn't wait. Like we we were trying our best to find a halal option to buy a house, and yeah. uh, it just we couldn't wait. Like we thought we'd never be able to own our own property. But uh, before we get into that moment, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background is, and how you kind of uh, like uh, got into the Islamic finance and what brought you to Malaysia? Yeah, sure. So um, my, my background essentially is um, I was actually doing accounting, so I have a Bachelor of Commerce in Accounting from the U of A. Um, after that, I pursued an MBA from Queen's University, and then finally I acquired a chartered Islamic finance professional designation from um, INSEF University in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. So my main um, experience and my main dabble in my professional career has been in from a real estate uh, development perspective. We have a family business, so that's what basically I've been involved in um, essentially my whole life. Um, the I guess the interest been from our own personal self, how do I move our business from having to deal with banks um, to develop um, properties which are capital intensive and, um, you know, what is the solution? And basically I came to the point that I said the only way I can come to a solution is not relying on other people and figuring out for myself what we can do. Um, so it was with that intention then I, um, you know, went towards um, – Islamic banking finance, I, you know, I, I checked out a couple of places and at the end, um, INSEF, which stands for the International Center for Education and Islamic Finance, which is a sub-wing of the Central Bank of Malaysia. So they just decided that, you know what, this is something I'm really interested in. I want to help the community if I can in any capacity and as well as help myself first and foremost as well to get out of the grips of riba and all that. And um, so we took the plunge and moved to Malaysia. What was that experience like? Um, it was a wonderful experience. Um, probably, I mean, we miss it a lot. We talk about it all the time. We wish we could move back. Um, had it not been for it being such a long flight, especially for my parents, you know, to get to Kuala Lumpur, it's like it'll end up taking what stop a stopover. It's almost 30 hours to get mm-hmm. there. So it, it was just too long um, and too much of a distance. Um, being away from mom and dad and uh, not being able to have them there. So um, I think that was the main main factor why we decided that, you know, after my, my studies that um, that we just moved back 
initially the intention was that I wanted to maybe spend a couple of years there, um, learn Islamic finance, get in, in, involved with real estate development there as well and see how we can bring stuff back. But uh, unfortunately, just because of that, um, I just decided that it was best that we at least move back and, um, and uh, you know, try to hit the ground running in Canada. So what do you think is Islamic finance? Uh, from sitting here uh, right now in front of me, I have six books in front of me on this, you know, the law of Islamic finance um, because I was writing a paper on it. But one of the things that I found in it, uh, in these books, was that there wasn't really a clear definition of what Islamic finance really was. So what would you think or what would you define Islamic finance as? Well, you're right. I think in reference of having a definitive definitive answer, um, it is a little bit difficult depending on the fact that uh, different school of thoughts do have different positions on differing contracts, products, and um, services. But from my perspective, I, it, where, what Islamic finance is, is an ability to um, gain, obviously, a monetary or being able to have a transaction, which is obviously inconsistent from a Sharia perspective. But the reality is that it's an ethical alternative. And um, at the worst case scenario, if people are skeptical of it or not, but we can see that the institutions that do follow Islamic finance from the very standpoint clients, whatever, I mean, we know that it's from an ethical standpoint, as in you know, no investment in tobacco, alcohol, armaments, pornography, you know, things which are from a detrimental standpoint um, to society. And I think that, from a nutshell, is um, a very simplistic understanding or a description of what um, Islamic banking and finance is. I think that's a really interesting uh, thing right out to start out with because, I mean, obviously one of the things that we're looking at today is this, this rise of predatory banking uh, and banking that, you know, the big banks, of course, uh, you know, as was chronicled in uh, a recent novel by Michael Lewis, and I think it's been turned into a film called The Big Short. I mean, uh, the, the banking industry in America and North America more profoundly has had some really negative, I would think, impacts on the way that uh, the average person actually lives their lives uh, with things like the subprime mortgage crisis. So what do you see as Islamic finances, you know, if it's an ethical, if it's a different ethical way of looking at finance, what is that? I know, and I know it's a big kind of question and there's multiple answers. What would you say? What are those big ethical questions? Well, you're you're definitely right in reference of what is taking place from a financial um, standpoint in, in North America and across the world. Um, I mean, we can see like I was actually just reading up um, a little while back, um, looking at I believe it was Goldman Sachs that their their assets are sitting at roughly 2.0 trillion and they have uh, derivatives valued at 89 trillion. So, I mean, it's uh, over like 60 times um, uh, in reference of the amount of assets they have to this fictitious reality of derivatives. So that just shows the level of exposure um, that a lot of conventional financial institutions have taken, which caused a lot of these issues um, from the subprime mortgages and all that. From an ethical standpoint, I, I believe where Islamic banking and finance um, shows itself is that it is uh, all about 
understanding the client, right? So, I mean, the main the main criteria or the viewpoints from conventional banks when they are financing someone, they you know they focus on lending, uh, the emphasis on the ability of the repayment of the person, um, dependence on borrowing, um, and then you know they only apply essentially a financial criteria. Whereas Islamic banks they focus on investment, and the emphasis is on the soundness of project and Conventional banks, however, do focus on that, but their main interest um, is the ability to repay, at least the interest. And then um, from an Islamic bank perspective, not only do they emphasize on the soundness of the project, the ethical standpoint is that there is a reference of risk sharing and uh, as opposed to risk transferring, right? So there's a sharing of profit and loss, or there's a sharing of going into ventures together whereas from a conventional standpoint it's essentially you are bound and the risk of everything is on you and it creates an unfair uh, scenario where the person is basically on the hook for everything and from an Islamic financial perspective um, that there is a sharing of this risk so one example is um, in reference of interest payments um, there is uh, a criteria where when so that people don't take advantage of Islamic financial institutions is that they actually have late penalties which is a charge on money that people haven't paid and which classifies as interest so what um, one of the banks in Malaysia and many of actually all the banks but an example is Maybank Islamic that they created a fund where all these interest payments of late payments would get channeled into and from that fund they created orphanages across Malaysia so they didn't actually benefit, of course, from that money. But even in the use of illicit um, uh, monetary standpoint from an Islamic uh, um, area, like money that is not permitted from Islam, they still utilize it in a way. You know, conventional banks who just have a department, quote-unquote, of corporate social responsibility. But that's what it is. It's just a quote-unquote department, right? It's just for public relation, trying to show the world what they're doing. And you see um, Islamic banks operating in a different perspective. And that was a really big um, thing that I thought showed the difference of um, how they actually contribute to society. Like, so, moment by again, you have to remember, like, Mustafa and I, our, our understanding of economics, risk, and interest are, like, um, sad, but but what, sad. what 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 I always get confused about is like so so like in in our current system, can you even is there even such a is it even possible to come up with a bank that isn't based on interest? Like how would you even do it? Like even though like you told you said you know this mashallah this bank in Malaysia would take uh, their interest payment payments and build orphanages, but isn't like you know at the bottom at the end of it they're still taking interest from the people who invest in the bank? Like, how do you, in, in today's world, how do you even make an Islamic bank that doesn't involve interest? And at, and at a related point, like, in Islam, what exactly is interest? Because I, 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 I feel like we assume that any time, uh, you know, someone, you have to pay extra for what a loan was given, that's considered to be interest. But I, I suspect that it's a little bit more nuanced than that. No, definitely. Um, I mean, in re just just to clarify, when I was talking about Maybank Islamic, I wasn't think that they that they 
are making profits off of interest payments, but rather this was a penalty that they would charge people who would um, default on payments or would refuse to make payments. So that was just um, a mechanism to make accountability um, upon the people who are borrowing from them or, or, or getting it. financing from them, right? Got it. Um, but no, you're right. I think in the modern world, um, I mean, even the Prophet ﷺ has stated in the hadith to the fact that even the person avoiding interest, uh, the dust of riba would land on them, right? Even the one who's trying to avoid it to their best. Mm. It is so ingrained into our world that, it, that in reality it is almost impossible um, to avoid. But I think what, um, what we have to understand is that we need as a community to recognize that you cannot go from zero to 100% Sharia compliant overnight. And um, that is what Mufti Taqi Usmani has um, talked about uh, quite a bit, that you know, there has to be a starting point um, for us to imagine that um, everything is going to be 100% Sharia compliant overnight is wishful thinking. And not because that these products um, or Islamic banking and finance is new, but rather actually it's existed for a thousand years. But its implementation was lost during the colonial time frame. And now it has become a new reality again. Um, and now it's trying to deal in a world where everything is interest-based. So, I mean, one of the items people will ask me about is, okay, well, well about profit and loss sharing or mm -hmm. structuring a product, will you still benchmark against an interest rate? And unfortunately, right now, when people ask me that question, I say, okay, well, what is an Islamic benchmark? Mm -hmm. If they do not benchmark against right now the LIBOR rate or CLIBOR rate or whatever the case may be, then what are they benchmarking against? What is an Islamic benchmark? Right. I mean, is it one Tawheed? Is it five? Five, you know, five prayers? I mean, what is it? Right. So there is no such thing right now as an Islamic benchmark to benchmark their products. Sorry, what's, um, a, what's a benchmark for those who don't know? In, in reference of pricing their products, how they come up with the price for the product um, when they're structuring it. Right. So in reference of how they come up with a profit standpoint and so on and so forth. Um, and. Right now, because there is no mechanism like that right now from a Islamic finance perspective, they're working on it. But now, obviously, you are you are pricing your products based off of an, a benchmark, which is obviously an interest rate benchmark. But that doesn't mean that you have interest in your product, right? And just one quick example, and I know I'm just trying to give a little bit of a framework so then I can um, focus more on the question you're asking. But... One example is um, that I give people is that if you have a business and you're looking, for example, a Mosin Canadian, right? It's an alcohol um, um, organization. And um, just say their return is, you know, they made a great return of 8, 9, 10%. Now, as you as a Muslim company, if you say, well, I want to benchmark my return based off of what Mosin Canadian actually made this year, I want to make a 7 or 8% return, does that make your business un-Islamic? Mm. No, it doesn't. It, exactly, right? It doesn't. Like you're just benchmark, just stating that you are benchmarking something does not make it in of itself uh, an Islamic, right? It's it's just a number that you are using. Um, so, I mean, going back, it is a reality that can take place um, when we look at the Islamic financial the conventional world. We're talking about hundreds of trillions of dollars, right? So. 
even though we've hit that pre- uh, benchmark of over two trillion, some say that it's um, valued at nearly five trillion. But I mean, that's still a drop in the bucket in reference to conventional financing. So the Islamic financial world needs to still work within the confines that they are because they're just a drop. But moving uh, by, um, so the you know two years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Pakistan, and when I was there, I was kind of surprised to learn that. Virtually every major bank in Pakistan has a Sharia-compliant kind of branch to it. You don't have to invest your money with a Sharia-compliant branch, but you could. Um, and it was just interesting because, I mean, these are banks who are not exactly uh, known for being kind or ethical. or I mean, they certainly don't put their returns in for orphanages. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what a lot of people there that I met kind of remarked was that, you know, they're calling it, Sharia compliant, but, you know, it's just interest uh, dressed up as, you know, rent. Uh, so obviously, Ijara is halal and, and Arabe is not, but they're just calling it Ijara and it's not, that has nothing to do with that. Um, so what would your, and especially, you know, considering that this is a $2 trillion industry, you know, there's a lot of money to be made here. I mean, kind of, you're looking kind of uh, skeptically at things. You think, well, maybe the banks are just, Still, it's the same banks, and they're just changing the names to kind of sucker in Muslims who want to do the right thing. Well, you're right. I mean, there is um, a, a reference of some some um, financial institutions that are taking advantage of it and aren't actually providing legit Sharia-compliant solutions or aren't honest and transparent. I mean, that's just a reality that's happening. In Pakistan, one of the issues was is that when they actually lifted the veil of um, seeing during after General Zilhak's time frame and they saw uh, about the financial institutions and are they really Islamic? I mean, they, when they lifted the veil, they saw that obviously it wasn't Islamic because all they did was they replaced the word of interest with rent or interest with this. So they didn't actually even change the structure of their products. All they did is they just changed the wording in a document. Um, so that was an issue in Pakistan in specific actually um, that took place. Um, when you see countries like Malaysia or Sudan, for example, Sudan actually has its own um, uh, Islamic banking um, framework so that they're actually, it is basically a Sharia compliant setup. Um, in Malaysia, they have a conventional um, Islamic financial setup and then they also have a parallel Islamic financial setup where money doesn't commingle. Um, the Islamic side stays on the Islamic side. The conventional side stays at the conventional side. So they've actually taken out the windows, which is what you're talking about. You have a window within a conventional bank. Um, in countries like Malaysia, they actually broke that down, that you don't have a window anymore. Like HSBC and HSBC Amana are two separate identities where their money does not um, commingle at all. And that the Islamic money stays from an Islamic standpoint in Islamic investment, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But I think in, in, in case of many people saying that it's just um, redressed as, uh, as from, from, from interest to lease, a lot of it is because of a lack of understanding of what um, the Sharia requirements are of um, creating an Islamic uh, product. And the other is not understanding really what Islamic finance is, right? Um, I mean, in a simplistic standpoint, when we eat Zabiya, non-Zabiya meat, the meat Generally, I mean, we're not talking about, okay, well, it tastes better without the fact, the way how it's slaughtered. But, I mean, at the end of the day, meat is meat, right? And um, it's the process. 
and what people are not understanding because they're not educated on this standpoint is what is the process that is needed to make something halal and permitted and unhalal, right? And zabiyah meat and non-zabiyah is one example. It's saying bismillah, akbar, zina, and having um, proper uh, marital relations is doing the nikah, whereas the action of that is basically one and the same, but one is sanctioned and one isn't, right? So it's the process that people do not understand, and because of the lack of understanding of that and us being ingrained in understanding only the Western perspective of finance, that is what creates a level of uh, skepticism. And the Muslims are more ignorant of Islamic finance than anything because it's new for us. I mean, it's absolutely new. So everyone will look at it from a skeptic uh, perspective. Can you walk us through that? Like, what, what is the process that would make something, uh, make Islamic banking uh, finance, or what would, what would make Islamic banking halal? And I, I, I recognize that it's probably not possible to explain all of this in a single podcast, but what 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 uh, what is the process of making something halal uh, for, from an Islamic financing perspective? Because I I like I'm sort of on the same boat as Mustafa that you know the stories and again these are anecdotes but the anecdotes that we heard are you know people will end up paying a, uh, what seems like it's interest but it's not called that. So could you just walk us through like what what exactly is the process that makes something uh, Halal and what isn't. So, I mean, the three basically fundamental items um, which make something permitted or not permitted from Islamic financial perspective is that um, it cannot have interest, um, uh, which is riba, of course, um, ambiguity, um, which is harar, and maisir, which is gambling and speculation. These are the three things which are the um, hallmarks that if any of these items are present, um, that they are the impermissible items which nullify and void um, an Islamic financial contract. But now giving you a specific example between Islamic finance and conventional would be when you and I uh, go to 7-Eleven, for example, and we buy a pack of gum, right? So 7-Eleven bought that for 60 cents and they sold it to you for a dollar fifty. Now, is that interest or not? Intuitively, not. Right. It's not right. Um, and the reason why is that there's an actual ownership of the physical asset, right? A markup is not. It's permitted. Um, I can mark up my product, whatever I want, provided that there's an ijab in kabul in the contract where there's an offer and acceptance. If I say I'm going to sell this piece of whatever uh, paper for a million dollars. And the other guy on the other side, provided obviously he's saying he's bothered, etc. That makes it permitted. So what people think is that just because something is marked up, that makes it, um, how is that any different than interest? And that's the misunderstanding that when you own an asset, and it doesn't matter if it's a pencil or a home, the process is the same in reference of asset ownership. When you own an asset and you want to sell it on a markup, that is permitted because you actually constructively own this and you are actually selling it to someone. Now, interest, on the other hand, is that you are paying a markup on money that you have borrowed. Uh, okay. So that from in itself, you don't own the asset. Uh, from an Islamic perspective, 
um, fiat currency money is not an asset. So you cannot mark that up. And any time you um, mark up uh, money, that, that right away is interest. Because in this standpoint, the profit is being made on one hand from marking up a physical asset which you own. On the other hand, from a conventional standpoint, how they make the money is charging money on top of money and not actually asset ownership um, in, in, from a financing perspective. So, I mean, this product that I'm talking to you about, and I'm sure Mustafa you know about as well, is... Um, Murabaha, which is profit markup. Um, but this is one example just to show the difference between how um, it would be from an Islamic perspective and as opposed to from a conventional standpoint, how they deal with it. But you know, this is subhanAllah, this is, I think the first time I've actually ever understood what Murabaha actually is. Um, I think a little more clearly. So, Jazakallah okay for that. Well, so, I hope <laughs> I hope I was able to help and not you know, just and rambling on. That made a lot of sense. I was I was gonna say the same thing. I, that's the first time anyone's ever explained that to me that clearly. So basically, in a, like an Islamic, for example, um, let's say if you took housing perspective, uh, like the company, the Islamic bank would actually own those houses, <laughs> and then when if you're paying for or you know quote unquote renting the house. You're, you maybe end up paying more than what the house, what the Islamic bank bought it for, but that would be considered a, uh, you know, murabaha, as opposed to getting a mortgage from the bank where you're just getting, uh, you're just paying interest on money that you've borrowed. Exactly right. So, I mean, in reference of yours, uh, your your um, description, Amir, that's. That one product that you were talking about in reference of renting from the bank, that's actually a different product, which is called a musharaka mutanakisa, which is diminishing partnership, right, where you're renting, leasing, and so on. Um, but you're right. I mean, that is basically difference. The, ref, the, the difference from a conventional bank at this standpoint is that they don't take risk of ownership of asset. And from an Islamic perspective, there is um, a maxim which is, says, al-ghurm bil-ghunam, that no risk, no reward. Risk, uh, if there is risk present and you are actually taking risk on, then there is reward which is permitted. Um, and what an Islamic bank would do in, in, in your example is exactly that, that they take the risk now of that house. They physically buy that house. Now they have that risk. Mm -hmm. And then they sell it to you at a markup, whereas a conventional bank doesn't do that. The conventional bank says, here is money, $300,000. I have ownership only of the money. You take that money, you buy the house, and you pay me back on my money, not on the interest. I mean, not on the house. Got it. So, um, first of all, I think that makes things a lot clearer to me. It also makes it pretty clear to me that there's a big need for greater literacy in this subject. Like, for example, let's say, you know, me or like Amir, you know, you're starting out as, you know, a young professional or me starting out as a young professional. And, you know, you might want to buy a house. Uh, and, you know, in that process, how, you know, how would you recommend people to young people? Are you cut out, my brother? I couldn't hear you. Are you I apologize. What I was going to say is that what would be the best way for people to gain those basic literacy skills? Is there an institution you'd recommend? Are there books you would recommend? What are the ways that people can gain those literacy skills? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, that is first and foremost the most important thing um, from, from a community standpoint is that we need to start getting literate um, about our faith and um, about this, um, in, uh, 
this institution essentially out of Islamic banking and finance. And um, it's not uh, what I would what I think is really important is obviously books like um, by uh, Brother Muhammad Ayyub, um, Understanding Islamic Finance, um, Mufti Taki Usmani's book, Islamic Banking and Finance. I mean, I, th- I think that's a good base level um, to start with. I mean, they're thick books. I mean, Muhammad Ayyub's book is really, really good. And, um, um, I mean, it's probably four or 500 pages, but, uh, I mean, it, com- it comes with good examples and it provides a, a tangible understanding of what, um, what an Islamic financial contract, etc., is. I think from the perspective of um, new professionals uh, coming in and trying to figure out what to do, it is difficult. Um, it's a question everyone asks, um, and it's a tough question to answer. Um, and that's why you have varying scholars um, who differ on this standpoint, and I respect all of the opinions. I think before uh, going to Malaysia and actually um, acquiring the CIFP, um, I was not privy to the realities of the Maqasid al-Sharia, um, understanding the legal maxims and stuff. Unfortunately, we don't get taught this stuff. We just don't. Um, when we go to the Quran schools, we get taught the Quran and um, the Hadith and so on and so forth, the life of the Prophet But we do not get taught the the legal maxims which are so important or even understanding fiqh and how fiqh works right. and mm-hmm. when we'll, I was we'll learn they, right. sorry sorry go on don't learn usul al-fiqh right yeah exactly right and, I mean and usul al-fiqh is I mean it's huge but even having a subset of that and just understanding the maqasid of sharia and the islamic legal maxims on certain things right like it really um, allows you to understand where scholars come from their opinions and um, as I said before this, I would, you know, be skeptical of one, you know, mufti that he gave his fatwa based on that because I only understood Islam as black and white. But when you actually take, uh, when you actually get yourself um, indulged a little bit into this type of knowledge, you realize that there's so many things that aren't black and white. So whereas some scholars who are saying that it is permitted for your first and primary residence, your primary residence, that it is okay um, to take a mortgage out to do that. I do understand the logic with where they're coming from. But I understand as well where the scholars say, no, it's not permitted at all because a shelter is only there for one purpose, not as your asset on your financial net worth, but rather protecting you from the elements of the exterior, which is wind, water, etc. And that's just the form of a house. That's what a house's function is. So, I mean, it breaks, it comes down to where someone's heart feels on this, right? I mean... I get this all the time. So many people ask me the same thing. I'm renting. I've been renting for five years, ten years. Um, I want to own a home. And what can I do? And unfortunately, there aren't that many options right now. Uh, Mustafa, where you you are at, actually, um, in Southern California, you have La Riba and um, the Bank of Whitaker, uh, which actually is an Islamic financial institution, which does provide Sharia-compliant solutions for the communities. Um, but where we're sitting at, obviously, that that isn't there. And it just comes down to the point of where a person's heart feels with this matter because there's varying opinions. And one cannot just say that there's only one opinion, opinion which is right. Well, I think that answers a lot of my questions and I think it provides a lot of starting points for for further discussions. And, you know, it's really important that we think critically about the future 
of Islamic finance in places like Canada and North America, bringing in regulators to effectively ensure that, you know, the market and uh, those who enter it aren't just, you know, window dressing, but have open and transparent uh, banking regulations. That's an important thing moving forward. Exactly. And so I, I cut out again, bro. I love that idea. You cut, you cut out again. What was that, Mr.? Uh, the regular the regulator idea being from law school of course makes me very happy to think so <laughs> definitely and you're right that's that's really important and I think from a Canada's perspective um, you'll be surprised though uh, the Harper government actually did sponsor an event I believe it was in Kuwait or Bahrain I can't remember uh, when Harper was uh, in power um, and I mean obviously the reality is they are recognizing that um, the developing world, especially the Muslim developing world, which constitutes a huge portion of the world's population, gross disposable income is increasing. And Muslims are now wanting to have um, an Islamic alternative. And um, one of the interesting things, actually, you'll, I, I'm, I don't know if you're aware or not, but there's an organization in Toronto called the TFSA, which is the Toronto Financial Services Alliance, which is... Uh, Partnership, a public-private partnership promoting Toronto as a financial hub of North America. And they did a white paper where they realized the only way that they would have a financial advantage ever, ever over New York or um, Chicago, and I mean their advantage would not be big, but the only way to make them an alternative would be to be the Islamic financing hub of North America. Huh. Just and, because there's uh, so many Muslims in Toronto. Not only just because of Muslims in Toronto, but because of the liquidity present in Islamic finance, right? Like, they cannot compare with Chicago, and they cannot compare with um, New York from a financial prowess, right? I mean, right. I mean, if you even just look at the GDP, quote-unquote, from New York, it's almost like 1.4, 1.5 trillion, which is wow. almost a couple uh, hundred billion less than all of Canada combined, right? I mean, that's what one... The city provides is that that's that powerful just like london london is even more than that um, bring in a level of competitive advantage is that you have then sovereign um countries investing in canada or or bringing in fdi because we're saying hey look um we're an islamic financial hub and that's exactly what um ireland um is doing um, they created a sh um, their stock exchange to be Sharia compliant. So a lot of now in Europe, this, the Islamic bonds are being um, issued there because they made themselves to be Sharia compliant friendly because that's the only way that they will have a competitive edge. All right. I think that's a, I think, uh, Amir, unless you have any more kind of questions, I think that's a really good place to yeah. to be ending the conversation. Yeah, I, I mean, there's so much more that we that you could we could talk about it, and I, I, but I think that was like a, for me that was a big, uh, just trying to understand the difference between uh, uh, that in that example that Mumbai gave. So that was really good. I mean, I think we're gonna ha we'll have to bring Mumbai back to talk about other thing, other uh, concepts. Um, but uh, that was really good. And Jazakallah Mumbai, and may Allah reward you. Uh, the only last question that I had was why why is it so difficult for um, you know, you know, you said that there's so much liquidity. There's there's so much, uh, like it seems like there's so much promise in Islamic financing. But why is it? Why does it seem like it's been so difficult for um, anyone to really establish a viable Islamic financing system in North America that people feel comfortable 
uh, using and going to, and that actually is uh, profitable for people to invest in? Well, I mean, I think uh, in specific reference of Canada, uh, I mean, definitely there's regulatory um, issues that do come up. Um, for example, KPMG issued a white paper themselves. You know, how would it be? And um, and that's an issue that England was um, seeing as well, whereas that the way the product is set up, people are getting taxed twice um, based on the contractual formulation of, uh, of, of, of uh, Amrabaha setup. So, I mean, it's trying to figure out how um, to set up things which make um, the environment conducive. And the biggest thing is government um, support. If government support is there, um, that will help create a level of um, interest. So one one example that I'll just quickly give, the reason why in Malaysia Islamic banking and conventional banking, um, Islamic banking is prospering, is that the Central Bank of Malaysia created a level playing field for both Islamic fin finance and conventional finance so that there was a subsidies given so that Islamic financial products could be competitive with conventional. And when you do that, that's why now in Malaysia, they say over 60% they, over 60 of some of the Islamic financial institutions' clients are actually non-Muslims. Huh. Uh, not even Muslims, they're non-Muslims, right? So um, it, the government plays a big role. Um, I think the reference of liquidity is that right now we have small shops across Canada, right? But when you look at the financial statement of RBC, you're looking at $850 billion, right, of assets, I mean, when you're looking at the small mom and, mom, mom and pop shops that we're, we've created, they just do not have the liquidity to assist the community at large. Mm. And um, this is where you need either um, a well-funded Islamic um, financial institution coming in, setting up shop, or a conventional financial institution saying, you know what, um, we've recognized the importance of uh, Islamic banking and we create a window and uh, we provide financing. I think these are one of the these are the reasons why um, it's not prospering as much. But um, you will see that it will start coming because the future is Islamic banking finance um, with the Muslim world developing. Uh, I believe that's where it's going, and I know the government is recognizing that. And there was a paper in the Glo article in the Global Mail, I think, on December twenty fourth or twenty third, um, saying that Islamic bank banking and finance is set to boom in Canada because they're coming on board. They're recognizing it's not an industry that you can uh, ignore. Okay. Mubai for uh, giving